0: All right, good morning. good morning. I'll tell you what, that song we just sang, My Soul Arise, it's such a sweet song. Uh, and I don't know about you, but it's a song that uh, I needed to hear this morning. I think there's often times you come into worship and you, you just need to preach the gospel to yourself. And that's what that song really leads us to do. Uh, we need to tell ourselves, Soul Arise, remind me, God, that I'm a child of yours. And so, this morning, I want to start off uh, by having you think. I want you to think about what is what is the greatest trial that you are going through right now. What's the most challenging area of your life that you're going through right now? And let me ask you a question: Do you have somebody that's walking with you through that trial? More specifically. Do you have somebody in your life that's walking through that trial with you that's intentionally and consistently pointing you back to Christ? Today, my prayer is as we look at this passage in Luke chapter 17, that we'll see the benefit of having somebody care for our souls in that way. And we'll see and be inspired to care for other people's souls in the way that Jesus describes here. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6, give you a little bit of the context as as you're turning there today. So Jesus has been really rebuking the Pharisees over and over, over the last few chapters. He's been getting on the Pharisees because the Pharisees are just not good people. Uh, they pretend to be good people, but they're not. And so even when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's talking loud enough so the Pharisees hear him and he's rebuking them. And recently he's primarily been focusing on the Pharisees' love of money. The last uh, parable that we read last week, uh, the, the rich man and Lazarus was another indictment against the Pharisees. was telling the Pharisees, look, your wealth, just because you're rich, that doesn't mean God has blessed you. Okay, Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, that doesn't tell you the whole story. You're, that's not your whole story. And so today he turns back to his disciples. He's talking directly to them, but he's, again, he's talking loud enough for the Pharisees to hear. And again, he's warning his disciples, don't be like these Pharisees. And his focus is on the disciples' relationship with one another. He wants them to care deeply for one another's souls. In other words, he wants them to care deeply for the relationship that they have with God. They want their, their best friends, their family, to have a good relationship with God, and that's significant. And this passage really gives a picture of what that might look like. There, there's three commands that Jesus gives his disciples, and then there's an encouragement to, for them to, to trust in him, for them to be obedient to these commands. And so let's pray, and then we're going to dive into this passage together. Father, I pray that you would increase the capacity of our hearts to have compassion specifically for one another. Help us to truly love one another enough that it would move us to action. Not just to care for each other's physical needs, but to care for each other's souls. And More than anything, Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified as we dig into this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Pick up with me in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So the first command that we see in this passage comes in verse 1 and 2, and it's this. If you're taking notes, you can start filling in the blanks here. Don't lead people away from God. Don't lead people away from God. Now, he starts off, after sharing the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he turns to his disciples and he says, temptation to sin are sure to come. We live in a broken world, right? And so there's going to be temptation. In fact, when you become a believer, the temptation doesn't go away. In fact, it gets worse. There's a spiritual war that starts in your mind and in your heart. Because we've got a mortal enemy in this on the the earth that he wants to destroy our souls and he wants to to keep us unfruitful for Christ. 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9, Peter says be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering or temptations are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Notice Nobody's safe. Nobody is safe. All are tempted. Uh, Paul goes on to say, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you've never gone through a temptation that somebody else hasn't already gone through. You are never alone in your temptation. Uh, Jesus says, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that it, he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And, and the term little ones there, he's not just talking about children there. He's talking about all believers, all of God's children. And the, the Greek word that's used, the original language that's used in verse 1 for temptation, it's scandalon, which we get our English word scandalous from. It literally means to stumble. And so to, to cause somebody to fall into temptation, it, it, it's literally to, to cause somebody to spiritually uh, trip. Uh, it, it's, it, in this language, it, it's almost like it's spiritual child abuse, in a sense. It's scandalous. It deserves a severe condemnation. He mentions a millstone. It's a large rock that they would use to crush grain. And even the best swimmers, if they've got one of these tied around their neck, they're not going to be able to swim to the surface. And so Jesus is essentially saying that, look, it would be better for you to experience a premature premature physical death than to experience the eternal agony of, of hell because you led a, somebody away from God. Uh, and again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, warning them, don't be like the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus, earlier in Luke, calls the he's talking to the crowds and he, he says look beware of the leaven of the pharisees in other words the hypocritical teaching of the pharisees it's kind of like yeast and warm bread it just spreads their their teachings like a disease that you don't want to catch and pretending to be godly they were leading people away from god and as a teacher of the bible i I recognize that my my role, my job is is risky. Uh, James, the half brother of Jesus, in his short letter he wrote in James three one, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Uh, the author of Hebrews likewise says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account." Um, that's why I spend hours preparing to, to teach God's word. This is, this is why I need your prayers. I covet your prayers that I would, I would teach correctly and the, the truth. Uh, this is why I need you to keep me accountable. If I say something that uh, is just wrong and could potentially lead somebody away from God, I need you to tell me that, confront me about that. Some of the strongest words in the Bible are warnings against false teachers. And so if you're a teacher of the Bible, if you lead an MC, if you are a teacher in Mercy Kids or have a Bible study at work that, that you lead, these passages should cause you to know, have a, a healthy fear. But even if your primary role is not a teacher, these passages should still cause you to pause. There, there's other ways that we can lead people away from God into temptation. First, obviously, there's the, the direct temptation. Okay, drug dealers, uh, prostitutes, young men tempting girls to give up their their virtue, husbands who convince their wives to cheat on their, their taxes. And in, in the Bible, you see David commanding his men to murder Uriah to cover up his own adultery. Or, or you've got Jeroboam who leads the whole nation of Israel to worship idols. So there's direct Temptation but also there 's indirect ways that we lead people into temptation often it 's provoking people to anger. Uh, Ephesians mentions specifically fathers, you should not provoke your your, your children into anger, uh, leading people into gossip, um, women dressing provocatively and, and it can go even with you 're not doing anything. Uh, at all. Sometimes it's just parents not discipling their kids and allowing the world to teach them what they should know about God. Then, third, by example. You can lead people away from God and tempt, into temptation by example. Parents, I mean, you know this, right? It's a humbling thing to watch your child behave sinfully because they're just doing what they saw their parent do. They copy you, it's humbling. Uh, Also, though, we need to be aware of not abusing our Christian liberty. Um, If you, and Paul talks about this, if if you have a a weaker brother is how he phrases it. If if they think eating meat is a sin, you shouldn't eat meat around them. Uh, If you've got somebody who struggles with alcohol, you ought not have a drink around that person. And so you can lead people into temptation just by your example. Uh, I know what, Cam and I are approaching the the season of life where it won 't be long before we 're starting to send our kids out into the real world, and whether they go to college or off to another career uh, it 's a scary thing as a parent, and one of the fears you have is you, you wonder what 's going to happen are they going to be are they going to be led a, astray and uh, and away from you and what if what if Hannah meets a guy that thinks our crazy family is just weird and doesn't want to be around us. Or what if she gets convinced by a college professor that Jesus is a myth and so being around us just becomes awkward. And I know a lot of those fears are unfounded and we need to trust the Lord in, in those times. And and I recognize that God doesn't have those same kind of fears. He knows the future. There's no uncertainty in God's mind. But in this passage, I, I really do thank you You see God's personality, his love for his children in these verses. Just like us, he longs for his children to be close to him. He longs for them to have a good relationship with one another, too. I mean, I want our kids to get along. And so he goes on to another commandment in verse three. He says, Don't let people drift away from God, okay? Don't let people drift away from God, okay? And so you don't want to push them away, but you also, if, they, if you see them drifting away, you, you ought to run after them. Okay, just like the parable of the the lost sheep. You leave the 99, go after the one. You should go after those who are drifting away. Pay attention to yourselves, he says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And th- that phrase, pay attention to yourself, it could be referring backwards. And it would mean then pay attention to yourself uh, Don't cause somebody else to stumble, but it also could be pointing forward, and it could mean corporately, pay attention to one another. Uh, Some translations say, be on guard, and so then it would be, be a guardian for each other's souls. I think that interpretation makes the most sense, especially in light of the rest of the verse. Uh, The primary command here is to, to rebuke your brother in Christ if they're in sin, now, let's, start, let's talk about what that is not. Okay, what does it mean to, to rebuke? It doesn't mean this, because this is often, often when we think about rebuking, we think about just angrily confronting somebody about something that they've done wrong. That's what we think of when we think of rebuke. That is not what Jesus has in mind here and here in this passage. Scripture is consistently teaching that when you rebuke somebody, it's always with the motivation of love and the desire to, of restoration. Uh, you're, you're hoping for true repentance, it's mentioned in this passage, and forgiveness, reconciliation. Uh, Jesus is also not saying that you should rebuke every sin that you see in somebody else's life. I'm very thankful the other day when I was going a few miles per hour over the speed limit, I passed a police officer that they did not pull me over, they overlooked my transgression. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I have a wife that doesn't point out every single offense that she sees. That would be exhausting. In fact, Scripture warns us. It uses the word busybody. A uh, busybody is somebody that is constantly over-eager to point out the faults of others. And so Scripture says don't be a busybody. There, there's certain minor offenses that we should simply overlook. Uh, so, Proverbs 19.11 Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. And so before you rebuke somebody, you should always ask the question, okay, what are my motives? Why do I want to rebuke this person? Is it out of a genuine love for this person, a concern for their souls, or or am I just angry at this person because they've offended me or they have offended somebody that I love? Why do I want to rebuke them? Uh, Jesus teaches us that we should first pull the plank out of our own eye, so that we can get the speck out of our brother's eye, right? And so he's encouraging us to get the speck out of our brother's eye, but first we need to deal with our own sin. Is there anything that I've done to contribute to this problem? So you should check your motives before you rebuke. And so the question is, when should you rebuke? What sins are too serious to overlook? Uh, there's a, a book that we went through in cross training uh, by Ken Sand, The Peacemaker, is really helpful in this. Uh, number one, when should you rebuke? You should ask the question, is it dishonoring to God? Okay, so is is this a believer or somebody who proclaims to be a Christian and what they're doing is harming their witness or it, it's uh, potentially causing others to think less of God or less of his church or less of the The Word, it may be necessary in that moment to lovingly rebuke that person. Secondly, number two, is it damaging your relationship between them? Have they done something that's so offensive that it's causing you to feel bitterness? Is it causing you to feel resentment in your heart? Uh, And in these situations, again, it's really important that we check our motives and and make sure if there's a plank in our eye that we remove that first make sure our motives are right. And, And in fact, often in these kind of situations, it's wise to seek outside counsel to help you guide you through the messy situation. Number three, is it hurting others? Is what they are doing hurting others? And so obviously things like abuse or drunk driving, but also potentially leading others away from God due to their example or false teaching or gossiping or, uh, or other things that could potentially cause harm. Uh, it's time to lovingly rebuke them. And then number four, is it hurting the offender? Is it hurt? Are they hurting themselves? Are, are they addicted to something that it's causing them uh, real harm? Are they, maybe it's alcohol or drugs or pornography uh, maybe they're they're cutting, that's self-harm. Maybe they're developing some eating disorder. And, and yes, during those times, we need to lovingly rebuke them and help restore them to a healthy lifestyle. And so there, before you rebuke somebody, you need to think through, is this something that should just be overlooked or is this something that's serious enough that we need to lovingly confront? And so the next question then is, okay, how do we do that? What does that look like? How do we lovingly Rebuke somebody. Well, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. It's to the right. If you're in Luke, turn to the right. might keep your finger in Luke. But if you go to the right, you're going to find Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 6, which is on page 1078, if you're looking for it, 1078. Galatians 6.1 is really helpful in teaching us how we ought to rebuke somebody. And so again, this is not just angrily confronting somebody because they've done something wrong. It says, brothers, this is Paul talking, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Notice here in Galatians and back in Luke, he's talking to, he says, if your brother... Okay, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught. He's talking about other believers. Uh, we're supposed to care for unbelievers also, but the primary focus in these passages, especially in Luke, he's talking about your brothers in Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, next in Galatians 6.1, notice Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression. That word caught can also mean ensnared, can mean surprised, can mean overtaken. Uh, Maybe you heard in the news this past week of this guy in southern Thailand. He's a base jumper. And he jumps off the cliff, pulls his parachute, wind pushes him back into the mountain. He gets caught on the mountain. We've got a picture of it. Yeah, so he's hanging there about 600 feet above the ground for a few hours before they're able to rescue him. And so here's the thing. Both that base jumper... In the person who is caught in sin, they've got the same problem in the sense that they've gotten themselves into a situation that they cannot get themselves out of. They cannot rescue themselves. And so they need somebody to step in. They need somebody to help them. As Christians, if, if you saw somebody who is physically hurting and you could do something about it, would you just stand back and do nothing? I would hope not. If you see somebody who is in spiritual danger and you can do something about it, you ought to be willing to step up and confront them and rebuke them lovingly. And notice in Galatians 6 that Paul encourages those who are spiritual to do something about it. In other words, those who are walking in the Spirit, before you rebuke somebody, you ought to be praying, Spirit, guide me, help me, give me wisdom in how to deal with this situation. And then finally, notice Paul says we should restore them with a Spirit of gentleness. The rescuers that that brought this guy down, they didn't just go up to him and like, man, you're just a moron, what were you thinking? And cut his lines and let him drop, okay? They carried him down gently and then they, they cared for his wounds. If you're gonna rebuke somebody lovingly, you're, you're gonna restore them gently and that means that when you bring them To safety, you're also going to have to potentially help repair some of the damage that their sin has caused. That may mean that you help them repair a relationship that's been broken. It may mean that you help keep them accountable so they don't slip back into the same error. Once again, it may mean discipling them and teaching them a better way. Again, the goal is restoration. It may mean that you have to forgive them for something that they've done to you. Which, is, which brings us to the third command. Look in verse 3 and 4. <clears throat> uh, the command is this. Don't prevent people from coming back to God. Specifically, don't prevent people from coming back to, to God-centered relationships. Look in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, Jesus is not saying you should count how many times somebody sins against you in one day. And if they get to number eight, he says, "Nope, oh, stop. Jesus said I only had to, to forgive you seven times. Okay, he's not saying that. The, the number seven in, throughout Scripture is a number that represents completeness. And so Jesus is saying that if if somebody sins against you and they truly repent. You should always forgive them. Always. Now, as a Christian, uh, we should be reminded that this this should come easier to us than anybody. Forgiveness should come easier to us than anybody. Uh, first of all, holding a grudge is never healthy, right? Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, it's never healthy. Uh, but especially for us in the church, I mean, if, if we fail to forgive somebody, we fail to allow them to come into fellowship with us, we're cutting them off from what God has designed as the primary means for them to grow in their relationship with the Lord. And so we should be more forgiving than anybody, primarily because we have been forgiven. We've experienced. If you're not willing to forgive somebody, you need to ask the question, do I really understand the gospel? Do I really understand how much I've been forgiven? Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And if one has complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Remember, Christ didn't die on the cross just as an example for us, He died to pay the penalty that we deserve because we re- rebelled against God, sinned. And so, understanding our own forgiveness empowers us to be able to forgive others. Now, what is forgiveness? First of all, what is for, what is what forgiveness is not? Let's talk about that. Forgiveness is not simply a feeling, it's not simply forgetting, and it's not excusing. Okay, forgiveness is not a feeling, it's, it's, a, it's a choice. Okay, we're gonna say that again over and over. It's a choice to, to bear with one another, to give grace, to absorb the cost of somebody else's sin. It's a choice not to dwell on the sin over and over. It's a a choice not to hold it over their heads. It's a choice not to gossip about them. It's a choice not to slander them behind their back. Forgiveness is also, it's it's not forgetting. Okay, when you forgive somebody, it doesn't erase your memory. Now, time may help make it easier to forget. But it's not erasing your memory. It's a choice not to allow yourself to dwell on the sin over and over. And then finally, forgiveness is not excusing what they did. Uh, it's not saying that what somebody has done to you is okay. In fact, forgiveness is the opposite of excusing. It's acknowledging that somebody did something wrong to you. And it's dealing with the sin honestly. And you know what? It brings a way better freedom to you than just brushing it under the rug and excusing it. Often, forgiveness within the church is where the gospel shines the greatest. Uh, When the outside world looking in at the church sees us forgive what they think is unforgivable, they take note of that. And the gospel shines great. Now, if you come to this point and you're thinking, gosh, these are hard, you're with everybody else, okay? These are difficult requirements, difficult commands and I think the disciples get that. They recognize that what Jesus is asking them, they can't do on their own. And so what do they ask Jesus for? Increase our faith. Help us trust you more. We can't do these things on our own. Help us to rely on you. Increase our faith. And so Jesus responds by saying, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, small, tiny, you could say to this millberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. I want to make this really clear. Jesus is not saying that faith is like some kind of force like on Star Wars, okay? That you can like move something with your, with your, uh, your faith, okay? He is saying that faith is powerful though. Faith is really powerful. Faith is powerful to help you not lead other people astray. Faith is powerful to help you draw people, have the courage to draw people back and rebuke them. Not care about what they're going to think about you in that moment, but care about their souls. Faith is powerful to help you forgive even the most heinous crimes against you. Remember, we are like conduits for God's grace and for God's love. Uh, we're, We're like the pipeline And if we're not plugged into the source, we're like an extension cord, right? If you're not plugged into the source of that power, we're going to be like a dried up well. We're not going to have the resources. We're going to have little to offer somebody else. We love because God first loved us. And so we've got to be plugged into a relationship that is thriving with God for us to be able to care for other people's souls well. Yes, Jesus often gives us very difficult commands, but he never leaves us by ourselves to be obedient to them. He always helps us follow those commands. And so let's talk about just some practical applications as we close out here. Number one, I would encourage you, in light of this passage, press into your relationship with the Lord. Uh, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God. You want to trust God more so that you can be more obedient to caring for other people's souls, you've got to plug yourself into the power source. Press into your relationship with the Lord. Number two, as you begin to care for others' souls more deeply, I would encourage you to pray for one another consistently. Uh, if you're a member, uh, hopefully you've got the, member- the, the members directory Uh, as an app on your phone. If you don't have that yet, you can talk to myself. You can talk to Laura Cook. We'll get you set up with that. Uh, Perry and I have challenged one another to, uh, every single day, take a portion of that list and and just pray specifically for people. And if you break it down into, I think, five people a day, you'll get through everybody in in a week or every family in a week. Uh, I would highly encourage you to begin consistently praying for one another and what you'll find as you're doing that as you'll see people in the directory I I haven't seen that person for a while maybe I need to reach out to them I wonder why I I wonder how that and you'll you'll start maybe even reaching out to them hey how can I pray for you I mean I would love for man it would be so awesome for our members your phones to be blown up throughout the week how can I pray for you how can I pray for you how can I pray for you Um, get to know each other i just praying for one another. Care for one another's souls in that way. And then number three, join an MC. If you haven't gotten, whether you're a member or not, right now is a time for you to get plugged in, not just on Sunday mornings. Because reality, to, to care for other people's souls and have people care for your souls like this, like we're talking about today, it's not going to happen very easily if you're only coming on a Sunday morning. Especially if you're only coming on a Sunday morning every once in a while. It's going to take forever for you to build it. And you may never build those relationships, honestly. In fact, most of the people who get disconnected from Mercy Hill are people who stop coming to a missional community or never come to a missional community. That's where you're going to build the relationships, where you get to know people well enough and they get to know you well enough where you can truly care for one another's souls. And so join an MC. We've got, and if you need more information about those, talk to myself, talk, talk to Perry. Uh, we've got three going on right now. We're hoping to start up a fourth one uh, here soon. But throughout the week, get plugged in. Uh, just coming on Sunday mornings, you, you're never gonna build those kind of relationships. And then finally, if you're not a member, become a member. Uh, membership is about commitment. It's about saying that, look, I wanna be part of this family. Uh, when you commit to being part of this family, they're going to be more willing to commit to you. That's just natural for us to do that. And so next week we've got uh, membership classes starting. Uh, make it your priority to be here at 9 o'clock in the morning. And we'll, you'll learn more about what it means to be a member here at Mercy Hill. And then finally, take, take the membership covenant seriously. Um, help us t- to continue to create a culture of, of family. I mean, we want this place to be a place where people truly care for your soul. They don't, it's not just about caring for you being here, being present, but they truly care for your soul. That's what I want to walk into on a Sunday morning, where people feel like, okay, I'm coming here, and they don't just care that I'm here, they care that, about what's going on in my life. They know me. We want to create a place where you're constantly encountering people that are pointing you back towards Christ, especially when you're going through trials. We want a place where people feel free to confess their sins to one another because they know that they're not going to be judged. Listen, our heart here is not just simply to grow a crowd. Our heart is to grow a community, a family that truly cares for one another's souls. So let's pray that God would help us to do that. Father, thank you for this difficult and challenging word And I pray that you would help us. We recognize apart from your spirit motivating us and revealing to us how much you love us, we won't love others like you command us to. Help us to have the courage to draw those who are drifting away back lovingly because we care about them. pray that you would help us to forgive those who have wronged us because you've forgiven us first. Thank you, Lord, for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.